Welcome to Dig, a history podcast. When syphilis first became endemic in Europe in the 15th century, everyone blamed someone else for it. Italians, Germans, and Britons called it the French pox. The French called it the Neapolitan disease. The Russians called it the Polish disease. And the Poles called it the German disease. The Danish, Portuguese, and North Africans called it the Spanish disease. And the Turks called it the Christian disease. When it spread eastward on the ships of the East India Company and in the sailors who colonized the Orient, Hindus blamed the Muslims, Muslims blamed the Hindus, and everyone perhaps rightfully, blamed the Europeans. At first, it was an outsider disease, introduced by some foreign patient zero or invading army. But after several centuries, it was hard to ignore the obvious. However it might have started, it had long ago become an internal problem. And European states had to grapple with the best way to deal with the spread of the disease. Women specifically sex workers, tended to bear the brunt of those efforts. From the 16th century to the 20th, as governments on the local, state, and imperial levels implemented policies to curb the spread of the venereal disease, the otherness of syphilis took on gendered and racialized meanings. Though not limited to the British Empire, these issues are particularly well articulated and broadly conceived in the 19th and 20th century anglo uh, imperialism in places like India, Ireland, and Australia. And that's where we will ultimately be focusing on. Picking up where I left off with the great origin debate <laughs> of syphilis, we're returning to Gallicus Morbus today with a feminist vengeance. I'm Avril Earls. And I'm Elizabeth Garner Masaryk. And we're your historians for this episode of Dig. <laughs> We want to give a big thank you to all of our Patreon supporters, but especially our auger and excavator level patrons. Colin, Eric, Peggy, Christopher, and Lauren, y'all rock, and your good faith and donations help keep this podcast going. Listener, if you are not yet a patron, you can go to patreon.com slash digpodcast to learn more. So you don't need to have listened to our earlier episode on syphilis to enjoy this one. But please do. It is one of my greatest scientific achievements <laughs> in terms of, you know, researching and writing on other people's scientific achievements, but basically <laughs> a scientific achievement. <laughs> okay, sure. Um, anyway, we'll just give you a brief recap of the basics of that episode to help contextualize today's. Um, Averill and Marissa focused on the, the Great Origin Debate! <laughs> yes, the so-called Great Origin Debate of the sexually transmitted disease that we today call syphilis. For the scientists who study the origins and mutations of the bacterium Treponema 
pallidum, the specific strain of the treponema family that causes syphilis seems to have appeared in Europe on a wide-scale basis around the end of the 15th century. It was at this time that people of that period wrote about it as an epidemic. By the 16th century, early modern European doctors recognized that it was a sexually transmitted disease, but they did not yet differentiate between syphilis and another endemic disease, gonorrhea. Doctors didn't identify the difference between those two diseases until the end of the 19th century. Up until that point, they tended to lump all the symptoms of gonorrhea and syphilis together, and they called the whole shebang the venereal disease. So you, you got the VD. You got the VD. The VD. In terms of symptoms, the two were very similar. Both could produce vaginal discharge in women, and painful intercourse might be the result of the gonorrheal infection or the ulcerated chancres of the syphilis. Without a working germ theory or folks studying the bacteria under a microscope, there wasn't really a way to identify the core differences of the two. So syphilis was not identified by British doctors as a distinct venereal disease until 1879. So throughout this episode, we will mostly be talking about the venereal disease, the French disease, or the great pox, which were all names for the conflation of at least two, possibly more, sexually transmitted diseases that started really plaguing Europe uh, in the 1500s. So rather than anachronistically diagnose syphilis, we'll go along with how people thought about venereal disease from the 16th through the 19th century. When we get into the post-1879 territory, that's when we'll be talking a little bit more specifically about syphilis again, or at least we'll use that term. The previous episode is mostly about the various debates about the origins of the disease syphilis and the ways early modern Europeans thought about the more general French disease. In addition to scientists today still studying the paleobiological origins of syphilis, early modern European doctors debated its origins and other important questions like... Which dirty foreigner brought this disease to our soil? And we don't have condoms yet, so what's going to be the best method of prevention? Washing your penis with lye and douching with vinegar? Sounds great. <laughs> that's all That's all um, tongue-in-cheek, by the way. Yeah, yes. Um, obviously. Yeah, obviously. I mean, we do not, I mean, warning, do not, please do not wash your vagina with vinegar. You know, Lysol used to be... Used as like a vaginal douche wash, wash, yeah. But and that, friends, it was the focus of the previous episode. So, um, in grappling with those fascinating debates, Marissa and I didn't really have time to get into the really, to me, interesting stuff because once everyone had more or less settled down on the blaming of each other for importing the poxiest of poxes, they turned to discussions of how to contain, treat, and deal with the venereal disease which obviously, to them, was not going away anytime soon. And while I love diving headfirst into all those sciencey arguments, when it comes to sexually transmitted diseases, what I really love talking about is the sex itself. Because um, so you're so nasty. I am nasty. <laughs> Whether it was French or Neapolitan or German or Muslim, syphilis plagued the free and easy sex play of Europeans after the 15th century. It took centuries for doctors to truly understand the four phases of syphilis, let alone differentiate it from gonorrhea. Most treatments before the 20th century were temporary, alleviated symptoms, but did not cure it. Some of those treatments, like mercury vapors and pills, had severe side effects. And long term, those side effects were as fatal as the disease itself. 
So the violence with which the venereal disease took Europe, which Europeans then exported to their colonies and contacts around the world, was cause for real concern. Without a cure, local, state, and imperial officials tried to prevent the spread of the disease. Though Europeans continued to pay lip service to the perceived foreign origins of the venereal disease as the French disease or the Neapolitan disease or what have you, by the 16th century, secular and religious authorities identified a range of scapegoats on whom to concentrate their preventative measures. When scapegoats were needed, those targeted reflected systemic gender and racial discriminatory practices already developing or in place. Whenever and wherever there were outbreaks of the venereal disease, the venereal disease, women who sold sex were targeted and policed. Whether we're talking about 16th century Venice or 19th century British India, in a world where few to no measures were in place to prevent STD transmission, these women were usually first to be locked up. And we mean literally locked up. After the Black Plague did its own ravaging of Europe, early modern doctors and public officials decided that the only effective measure to prevent the spread of disease was to quarantine the infected and those suspected of infection. Hospitals all over Europe built or established outbuildings or completely separate wings that were for quarantining those sick with plague or, by the 16th century, the Great Pox or the venereal disease. Whereas most early modern hospitals were in the center of town and easily accessible for early modern Europeans traveling mostly on foot, these outbuildings, also known as lock hospitals, were on the outskirts of town. Those suffering from symptoms of VD could be carted out to the lock hospital to prevent fraternizing with other hospital patients. Because, of course, the first thing you do when you are laid up sick in the hospital is find another sick person with whom to have sex. As one does. As one does. In some cases, lock hospital patients were there voluntarily, um, obviously to get like treatment, and, right. and that's where they could get it. In other cases, however, as we'll get to in a moment, they were effectively imprisoned. Women, in particular, were more likely to be locked up until their symptoms disappeared or they died of the disease. Some lock hospitals, particularly for those whose patients were there voluntarily, treated the symptoms. Some, as in 19th century British India didn't even bother. Certainly, quarantine is a powerful tool in the prevention of the spread of particularly infectious diseases. It is something our public health and medical officials continue to employ today. But of course, STDs are not transmitted through coughing or handshakes. And if this, you know, hopefully this is for those of you who know the history of AIDS in 1980s America, 1990s America, this sort of is resonating with you. And there, right. there are lots of parallels between the history of AIDS and the history of um, there are. syphilis. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so there are ethical concerns pulsing around this method of STD prophylaxis. And those were concerns that the doctors who worked with these patients in the 17th, 18th, 19th, and 20th centuries shared. When the policies were so obviously gendered or racialized, they raised further ethical questions. And again, people at the time questioned and fought those policies on the grounds that they were so obviously misogynist or, and though less frequently in sort more of the like 19th century construction, racially motivated. Though a penis could infect a vulva as easily as the other way around, doctors tended to blame women with their hot, wet, cavernous vaginas for the spread of the venereal disease. 
as Laura Magot has shown, European doctors, from as early as Galen of Pergamon, had long associated women's bodies with disease. And the humoral theory of medicine, which we sketched out in the previous syphilis episode and which we've discussed in several episodes, including um, my episode on early American family limitation and Marissa's episode on pathology, diseases thrived or even originated in hot, wet places. One early modern doctor, Franca Storo, was one of the earliest to map the quote-unquote new venereal disease, and he wrote in 1546 that the seed of the French disease, quote, was not very readily taken in by the body. Hence, there was needed a sort of reciprocal heat in two bodies. Thus, somehow the germs became active and were able to adhere to something else and to propagate themselves. But this they could not have done unless they had been heated. Francastoro comes closest among his early modern peers to preemptively grasping germ theory by talking about their origination of disease as seeds or germs, as in germination. But in Italian, he used the word seminaria, which is also the root word for semen, so sex. And Francastoro's mind was essentially to understand the promulgation of these kinds of diseases. The viability of the vagina for germinating those seeds was just one scientific reason for assigning women's bodies blame for the spread of the venereal disease. What's more, in 1556, Italian doctor Pietro Rostinio published his account of patient zero for the French disease epidemic. According to Rostinio, when the French troops invaded Italy in 1494, a beautiful prostitute... Per Magot's translation, the most beautiful prostitute in particular serviced the French troops. She reportedly had a sore at the opening of her womb, and because vaginas are hot, wet, and cavernous, and the friction of sex made it more so, she spread the disease, so, quote, this illness began to stain one man, then two, and three, and one hundred, because this woman was a prostitute, and most beautiful. And since human nature is desirous of coitus, many women had sexual relations with these men and became infected with this illness. All of Italy, France, and throughout all of Europe. Rostinio's book was pretty popular for a medical treatise. It was reprinted twice and had fairly impressive circulation around Italy. Doctors up to that point hadn't really theorized a patient zero for a disease. There is, of course, no evidence beyond this one old man's pontificating, but the idea grew roots and entangled with the pre-existing European notions about women's culpability in the spread of sexually transmitted diseases. Laura Magot's piece in the edited collection Sins of the Flesh helped me in really thinking more broadly about the misogyny of European conceptualizations and treatment of the venereal disease. The central narrative of her piece in Sins of the Flesh, um, instructively, is how much more broadly this issue permeated Europe, and in particular Venice, on which she has written widely. In 16th century Venice, for example, it was not just women who sold sex who were locked up to curb the spread of the French disease. Tracing this line of thinking back to that Rossinio book identifying the most beautiful prostitute, Magot shows that any beautiful woman was pinned as being a danger to society. Any beautiful woman. Cover that face. Yeah. Men would be too tempted by a beautiful young woman, so hundreds of Venetian girls aged 12 to 18 were locked away in the Convertite, a convent, and the Zetel. 
The Zatel's mission was explicitly to prevent beautiful girls from being deflowered, and by extension, becoming vessels for Malfrances, or the French disease. The entrance records for the girls admitted to the Zatel only commented on girls rejected for not being pretty enough to be quarantined. <laughs> oh it's absolutely wild. And if you're interested, you should check out her um, book. So not just the the essay in The Sins of the Flesh, but her book, Gender, Sexuality, and Syphilis in Early Modern Venice, The Disease That Came to Stay. So, okay, I do have a question. Yeah. These are girls that I am assuming are not coming from the highest echelons of society. They are. Really? Yeah. Okay. So this All is, girls. This is all girls. All pretty no, girls. No matter what. Yeah. If she was pretty, she was locked up. Until she got married or became a nun. The Association of Women and Disease outlived the bizarre Venetian practice of locking up beautiful women. It even outlived the Galenic humoral theory. One need look no further than the British Contagious Diseases Acts from 1864, 1866, and 1871, and their equivalents as applied in India, Hong Kong, Gibraltar, and in the 20th century aboriginals in Australia. These legislative acts, controversial among elite white British men and women from the moment they were passed, sought to regulate prostitution and prostitutes as a means to halt the spread of syphilis. While there were doctors, politicians, and military leaders who obviously supported the legislation, there were also doctors, politicians, and military leaders who objected to the CD acts. Both the 1864 Contagious Diseases Prevention Act, which required prostitutes to voluntarily submit to medical examinations, and the 1866 Contagious Diseases Act, which made these checks mandatory and police enforced, passed without discussion through Parliament. In 1869, a group of British men formed an anti-CD acts group to protest and lobby against the demoralizing and unethical legislation, the National Association for the Repeal of the Contagious Diseases Acts. Notably, those men excluded women from their organization. Surprise! Oh, what? Victorian men are dicks? Oh, <laughs> surprise! In turn, well, it's because the ladies couldn't hear they such couldn't foul hear them, language. Yeah. We, Disease? We couldn't, we couldn't talk Vaginas. about this kind of thing. <laughs> what? They don't know anything about those. <laughs> Uh, in turn, Josephine Butler, badass, mm -hmm. founded the Ladies National Association, which took up the cause from a woman's point of view. For their delicate little pea brains. Yes. Philippa Levine, a historian of the British Empire, notes that while these acts targeted women, women were not the reason they existed. Having a strong, disease-free, but also appropriately masculine, a.k.a. heterosexual, military was essential to the 19th century, Europe, to 19th century European empires. In 19th century France, prostitution was regulated rather than outlawed. From 1802 onward, the municipal government of Paris established a dispensary where doctors examined Parisian prostitutes on a monthly basis to ensure that they were disease-free. Women had to pay three francs to be examined in the early decades until allegations of immense corruption among the employees of the dispensary led to its absorption into the municipal government in 1828. This was the model the British had adopted when they started implementing regulation systems in their colonies where they had a strong military presence, like Hong Kong, Gibraltar, and Malta, 
all of which regulated women who sold sex, modeled on the French system by 1857. The first act was written on the recommendations of a committee which had been formed by Parliament in 1862 to inquire into the state of venereal disease among the British troops. During the Crimean War, when Florence Nightingale revolutionized sanitation in military hospitals, officials in the British Army were invested in carrying those lessons over to better health and sanitation more generally in the military. Venereal disease had posed a problem among European militaries since the first reports of its outbreak in the French seas of Naples in 1494. In addition to sexual relationships between soldiers, armies attracted camp followers, which included people to cook and clean and tend wounded, but also people to attend to the sexual desires of the soldiers. Sexually transmitted diseases could spread like wildfire in these scenarios. As Britain grew its standing army to meet the needs of maintaining an empire on which the sun never set, the major garrison and port cities of the British Isles were as infective as any battlefield, perhaps more so, because the men were not distracted by the horrors of war. Beyond health and sanitation concerns, venereal disease was, by 1862, a massive problem among the British Army in India. After the Sepoy Rebellion of 1857, the British completely reorganized their military presence in India. Up to that point, under the rule of the British East India Company, most of the British Army in India was made up of indigenous soldiers, the quote-unquote sepoys. After those sepoys rebelled, a topic which we will have to come back to another time because it is an important discussion that, you know, is for another time. Okay. Um, the British government took over direct rule, relieving the East India Company of their command in India, and then completely restructured the indigenous troops. And by 1860, they had doubled the number of imperial white troops from 30,000 to 60,000 in total. At the same time that the British military leadership was still anxious about Indian resistance to British rule, the increase in white troops was faced with a challenge of its own. VD was much higher among European troops than indigenous troops. According to one report, it was four times as high, with 218 of every 1,000 British troops being infected. Being the debilitating disease that it was, that meant thousands of white soldiers were laid up in hospitals at what seemed like the most precarious of moments in imperial history. The 1864, 66, and 69 Acts, and then the 68 Acts was, uh, 68 Act was specifically for um, the colonies, uh, allowed police to arrest women suspected of prostitution. And you can see immediately where that would become highly problematic in many, many places, um, who would then be taken to a local hospital or doctor to be forcibly inspected for disease. If a doctor found symptoms of venereal disease, that woman would be interned in a lock hospital. The initial legislation allowed for internment up to three months. The 1869 Act allowed for internment up to one year, unless symptoms cleared up before that. These internments did not necessarily include medical treatment. Though, as we've already noted, treatment was not always better <laughs> than the disease itself. Uh, mercury, huh? Make you crazy. <laughs> the 1864 Act limited these liberties to just a few garrison towns in England and Wales. By 1869, the jurisdiction extended to 18 cities around the empire. 
Though the CD Acts were ostensibly for Britain, most of the major cities impacted by those laws were outside of Britain itself. London, for example, which was rife with prostitution, was not impacted by the Acts. The legislation mostly impacted Ireland, India, South Africa, Australia, and the aforementioned Gibraltar, Hong Kong, and Malta, and other British colonies. The repeal organizations, we should say, did not form up in response to the 1857 laws, which targeted women in Hong Kong, Malta, or Gibraltar. Their concern seemed to stem mostly from the expansion of the laws in the 1860s to include English, Welsh, and Irish cities, a.k.a. white women, yes. right? Josephine Butler certainly included the indigenous women of India in her repeal efforts, but at least at first, the organized resistance was focused on the treatment of white British women, prostitute or otherwise. Butler, unlike her male colleagues, continued her crusade even after the 1888 repeal of the British laws, targeting the Cantonment Act of 1897, which formally revived the CD Acts in India. Butler, in particular, was her own breed of activist. She was a feminist to the core. In 1897, she wrote to a meeting of LNA women in response to a House of Lords debate about the Cantonment Act um, being discussed. Hers is the warrior cry in all of our hearts. <laughs> Quote, My conviction goes so far as to embrace the necessity of women having a foremost place in the battle. When our sisters are vilely outraged and oppressed before her eyes, in August assemblies of men promote and praise and recommend that oppression and that outrage as they have done in the House of Lords, is it a time for women to sit still and only urge their men friends to speak for them? No. Women must cry aloud. They must appeal to meetings of other women through the length and breadth of the land. They must be seen and heard, and they will prove again in this matter to be a power in the name of the God of justice. Chills, I got chills, I got chills. Oh, man. So while numerous scholars have critiqued the charity work and activism of middle-class white women in Britain and the United States, and there is plenty to say about how harmful some of these women's efforts could be to the women in communities they thought they were helping. I like Josephine Butler for being pretty radical and talking the talk of sisterhood. One of the core critiques of the Ladies National Association, and very much representative of a growing Victorian feminist movement, was the quote-unquote double standard of the CD Acts, which exclusively subjected women to the demeaning examinations and institutionalizations. And why not men? In the Victorian mind, men, including soldiers, were above such debasement. Dr. T. Graham Balfour, a fellow of the Royal Society, the Inspector General of Hospitals, and the head of the statistical branch of the Medical Department of the Army, wrote that men were, quote, on a different footing from prostitutes who followed a dangerous trade, and so that examination is a great hardship to the moral, well-conducted men, and inspections are a disgusting duty unnecessarily on the medical officers, end quote. Briefly, very briefly, the Army tried to have their soldiers get regular STD checkups, but the boys in tan refused. Naturally, the administration turned on the more vulnerable. Women who sold sex, particularly indigenous women in places like India, Botswana, or Auckland, had little recourse or other options for gainful employment. They were at the mercy of the imperial system. Their rights and civil liberties were only guaranteed at the pleasure of the imperial state and its representatives. 
As Melissa Betts notes, both Lord Sandhurst and Sir Richard Airy disagreed with the suggestion that soldiers should be inspected for disease, declaring, quote, We may at once dispose of this recommendation so far as it is founded on the principle of putting both parties to the sin of fornication on the same footing by the obvious but not less conclusive reply that there is no comparison to be made between prostitutes and the men who consort with them. With the one sex, the offense is committed as a matter of gain. With the other, it is an irregular indulgence of a natural impulse. So this type of thinking that sex was for men a natural impulse, something that they could not help, and that for women who sold sex, that was evidence of how corrupt and immemorial they were, was common in Victorian Britain, particularly in connection with the defenses of the Contagious Diseases Act. In 1871, Charles Washington Shirley Deacon, the most Englishy named person ever, read a paper before the Medical Society of University College in London titled The Contagious Diseases Act, 1864, 66, 68, Ireland, 69, from a sanitary and economic point of view. In that paper, Deacon and Deacon, I keep saying Deacon, in that paper, Deacon insisted that prostitution was here to stay because men needed prostitutes to satisfy their natural instincts. And I shall read it, a, a section of it for you. Quote, prostitution, gentlemen, is no passing evil. From the earliest records of our race, even to the present time, we find that the daughters of shame have been ever present among men. Kings, philosophers, and priests, the learned and noble, the wise no less than the ignorant, have tasted freely of Circe's cup in every age and under every clime. And having thus always existed, have we not good reason to fear that the great social evil will always continue? Some of our opponents believe that prostitution can be done away with altogether. But the day when not a single prostitute can be found in London even will not be, I fear, in the time of any of us. Hence, when we say that prostitution is a necessary evil, we imply merely that it will always exist so long as the animal part of his nature preponderates in man. And I believe that this will always be the case among a great number of men. It is a necessary evil only in the same sense that poverty and disease are necessary evils, and it is almost as impossible to eradicate one as the others. Prostitution is a great and permanent. <laughs> so it's funny to think of that being given as part of a paper on economics and sanitation at an academic conference. But really, who doesn't speak about sipping from Circe's cup? In their conference papers. I, you I, know, I throw I, it in I every time. Every time, time. Every, every time. paper I've ever delivered. Yeah. Anyway. <laughs> <laughs> the National Association and LNA attacked the CD acts from every angle, trying to capture those who might have had moral qualms about government-sanctioned prostitution, but also liberals invested in the concepts of civil liberties and rights and reasonable people who might be swayed by evidence-based objections to a system that had already failed in France. Butler was known for demanding that they stop the instrumental rape, a shocking phrase to describe the forced inspection with a speculum to which the suspected prostitutes were subjected. 
Undoubtedly, that kind of gall drew the desired effect. They threw every book they could muster at the axe. Even before the National Association and the LNA formed, Dr. Charles Bell Taylor, a physician from Nottingham, objected to the first legislation of 1864. He called the law a, quote, gross violation on the liberty of the subject. He argued that Parliament had, quote, no more right to restrain a prostitute when diseased in the practice of her calling than any man in the same condition. Central to the repeal argument was that the regulation of prostitution was tantamount to the government endorsement of prostitution, which, to Victorian sensibilities, was unthinkable. Sadly, Walderston, surgeon at the Royal Albert Hospital at Devonport, was quite shocked to find that the, quote, women consider that the act recognizes them as it were, keeps them clean for the soldiers and sailors, and thus gives them a kind of status. They call themselves Queen's women. End quote. Another testimony in the Royal Commission investigating the efficiency of the Contagious Diseases Act said that, quote, prostitutes thinking the state endorsed their trade referred to themselves as Queen's women, government girls, government women, and London girls. In a speech to the House of Commons in May 1870, Member of Parliament William Fowler, a member of the National Association for the Repeal of the Contagious Diseases Act, argued that, quote, the French system has utterly failed after long experience and full trial. And we are asked to begin the same wretched system by men who, in their evidence before the House of Lords, confessed they knew hardly anything on the working of the plans adopted on the continent. I ask with confidence, why should we make this beginning? And why should we not rather take warning by the failure of others? I cannot conceive why we should expect to succeed when others have failed so signally. End quote. Indeed, the French system was problematic. Despite municipalizing the dispensary system in the 1820s, uh, venereal disease was still rampant. It was possible that traditions of demonizing prostitution acted against the potential, um, despite the technical legality of prostitution, the morals police still found ways to harass and persecute women who sold sex which prevented many thousands from operating openly and within the legal framework. Sexually transmitted diseases were ineradicable in a system that worked against itself. William Fowler and his associates pointed again and again to the seemingly inherent immorality of the British government approving, through regulatory legislation, the sale of sex. In 1870, he again decried the unnaturalness of the legislation, insisting that, Quote, these acts offended against common sense, against justice, and against morals. And therefore, I ask this house to tear from the statute books this disgusting page, and I ask you to not make provision for the flesh to fulfill the lusts thereof. End quote. Three years later, with no progress towards repeal but undeterred, he told his fellow parliamentarians that, quote, where you have prostitution under the superintendence of the state, you have a degree of immorality existing which is far greater than anything which occurs in England. I mean that it leads to the minds of people being habituated to this sort of thing, so that they fall into sexual excesses of every kind and of the most revolting nature. 
Finally, after 15 years of lobbying, during which time the two repeal organizations delivered 17,365 petitions against the acts bearing 2,606,429 signatures, Parliament finally suspended the Contagious Diseases Acts in 1886 and then entirely repealed them in 1888. Technically. Technically, the CD Acts were repealed throughout the British Empire. In India, where doctors writing for the British Medical Journal reported that, quote, the benefit which has accrued from the Acts has been immense as early as 1871, um, though the Acts may have been formally appealed, repealed, in practice, women, particularly indigenous women, were still policed and forced to submit to examinations and interned in the Indian Lock Hospitals, which were renamed cantonment hospitals after the 1888 repeal to disguise the continued practice. As the British Army attempted to curb the spread of ED among white soldiers and sailors in India, colonial administrators built on racialized tropes of the exotic, dangerous Orient to warn, cajole, and threaten white men away from Indian women. In 1870, the British Army restructured again, shifting away from career soldiers to short-term soldier who would stay in service for only six years. Young men seeking a bit of adventure, but genuinely also unmarried and poor, flooded into India's cantonments. At the same time, the British government started heavily discouraging white men from having long-term relationships with Native women. So, for example, new legislation made it harder or impossible for children of such unions to inherit or be recognized legally. As a result, these short-term soldiers sought mostly short-term encounters with the cheap indigenous female sex workers. According to Philippa Levine, the British administration was also really concerned about the presence of white women in India and what role they could play. As the British constructed a system of white supremacy to prop up their rule, they had to create strict roles of white over brown power dynamics. So it was acceptable for military officers and administrators' wives to come live in India and oversee a household, but for white women to move to India to be servants, laborers, or God forbid, prostitutes, and to possibly even have sex with indigenous men was unthinkable. In the Vine's words, the European prostitute, by her very presence, challenged white supremacy in distinctive and critical ways, which revealed dramatically and vividly the importance of sexual politics and colonial rule. It was with relief that British authorities could report that the greater number of Europeans engaged in prostitution in India were either Roman Catholics or Jewish immigrants from Central and Eastern Europe, and that even the few English women to be found in the brothels of India's were Jews. So by drawing lines around the racial hierarchy, even of whiteness, the British were able to create an artificial buffer zone to justify their continued imperial rule. This, of course, was not limited to British policies and practices in India. This architecture of white supremacy maintained British rule all over the globe, and while certainly not the only illustration of that system, the regulation of prostitution, of sex, citizenship, and white men's fit and soldierly bodies, is certainly a telling one. 
and the colonies, women bore the brunt of the CD acts. But more broadly conceived, for the British colonial officials, it wasn't just the women who represented the threat. It was the colony as a whole and all of its people. It was India or Botswana or the outback of Australia that represented sexual danger. As Levine put it, India was the disease, Indian women the contagion. In a 1905 memorandum to the troops, Herbert Kitchener, a senior British Army official and colonial administrator, explained in graphic detail how dangerous sexual relations with indigenous women could be. Playing on the trope of the exotic, dangerous Orient, he cast the women of the British Asiatic colonies as carriers of a syphilis unlike anything a British man could contract from a good white woman. Quote, syphilis contracted by Europeans from Asiatic women is much more severe than that contracted in England. It assumes a horrible, loathsome, and often fatal form, which, through which in time, as years pass on the sufferer, finds his hair falling off, his skin and the flesh of his body rot, and are eaten away by slow, cankerous, and stinking ulcerations. His nose first falls in at the bridge and then rots and falls off. His sight gradually fails and he eventually becomes blind. His voice first becomes husky and then fades to a hoarse whisper as his throat is eaten away by fetid ulcerations which cause his breath to stink. Oh my God. And this is a memo. This is, he sends this as a memo to his troops. He's like, light reading before you go to right. bed. Yeah. Basically trying to scare them. Yeah. It also like definitely reminds me of Marissa's episode on leprosy. Yeah. These characteristics were not limited to British Asiatic colonies either. In Botswana in the 1930s, the Bakwanaland Protectorate resident commissioner claimed that 90% of the colony's population suffered from venereal disease. This claim had no evidence to back it up, but was instead based on a long-standing assumption among British and other Europeans that people of the African continent were barbaric and naturally diseased. According to Megan Vaughn and Karen Jockelson, Africans were labeled reservoirs of infection and disease-rotten natives. In 1938, a medical officer called one of the traveling dispensaries a, quote, walking museum of clinical syphilis, while others called Botswana a highly syphilized nation. That's... Mm-hmm. In Queensland, Australia, from 1928 to 1945, Aboriginal people diagnosed, sometimes incorrectly, with syphilis were banished to Phantom Island Lock Hospital. There were two systems of VD control in Australia from 1912 on, one for the white population and one for the Aboriginal. Phantom Island Lock Hospital, where a 1941 survey showed that very few inmates actually presented symptoms of either syphilis or gonorrhea, was a method of segregation that operated within a larger white supremacist structure of race and sexuality in 20th century Australia. In each of these cases, Levine's words echo powerfully. Africa was the disease, and African women the contagion. Aboriginals were the disease, and Aboriginal women the contagion. Though the nuance of each of these contexts, the settler colonial contexts of Queensland or the Cape Colony, the late 19th century British imperial model employed in African colonies like Botswana or Nigeria or Kenya, the racist and misogynist core of the policies remained. That core shaped the initial Contagious Diseases Acts 
in the 1860s and continued to shape colonial policies in India, Gibraltar, Malta, Hong Kong, Australia, Nigeria, Botswana, etc., 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 well into the mid to late 20th century. Notably, the prevalence of VD in British troops in India did not subside, despite the continuation of the CDX under the new cantonment names. As the Viceroy of India wrote to the Secretary of State in 1893, quote, Although the same individual may have been admitted for treatment of venereal disease more than once, thereby inflating the total numbers of infected, the strength of the British Army in India as a fighting machine has been impaired by disease. Similarly, in the British Medical Journal, a memorandum from the Army Sanitary Commission from January 1894 plainly stated that a, quote, compulsory lock hospital system, that is the Contagious Diseases Acts, in India has proved a failure. While Levine is undoubtedly right that the CD Acts were created to protect the martial prowess of Britain's imperial force abroad, their abject failure and continuation after abject failure leave one wondering what all the forced examinations, humiliation, internment, and segregation were really for. And that's all she wrote, folks. That's a lot. I know that in America there was discussion about passing our own Contagious Diseases Act, but it, it, it was the argument that no, we're not going to legalize prostitution. Right, right yeah, yeah. We're not, that, we're not, that was the concern. You know. Instead, we'll just test on black men in a... <laughs> right. Well, and that's like 100 years later, though, right, almost, yeah. right? Like, yeah. I mean, this is going on for a long century. time. Yeah. You know, but there's definitely, like, um, the policing and the locking up of prostitutes, yeah. but not in such a systematic way as, yeah. as, as you describe here, for sure. Yeah, and, oh, my God, there was, like, the Botswana in the... the um, aboriginal phantom island log hospital like i threw those in at the end just because i wanted to this move this beyond just the indian discussion but mm-hmm. i just want you to know that there's like um listeners there's so much written on syphilis since the 19 late 80s 1990s yeah. it's it is there's not like a lot of books there's tons of articles yeah. like i went and did a jstor search and i downloaded 32 articles <laughs> and i felt overwhelmed by that so i just had to like focus it on this India, Britain, and then I wanted to include that Botswana and in, in, in Australia example just to show that this is a wider issue. So I'm assuming when you do that JSTOR search, you're probably putting up pulling up a lot of stuff in medical journals. No. Okay, so these history. are in like okay, like history journals. Social oh, yeah. history journals and okay. Yeah. Wow. Cultural history journals. Yeah. Okay, yeah. Journal of Southern African Studies, Modern yeah. Asian Studies, Journal of Asian Studies, Journal Journal of the History of Sexuality, Health and History. Yeah, wow. Gender yeah. and Medicine in Ireland. Oh, that's yeah. a book. But that's a book. Yeah. Journal of the History of Sexuality. Yeah. Damn. A couple of dissertations. Damn, theses. Gina. Yeah, it's there's a lot. Um, and you know, I've included in my show notes a list of further reading for all those articles and books that I pulled that I didn't actually get to because, you know, I wanted to keep this to an hour long episode (laughs) and not a four hour episode. And this is one of the reasons that, you know, after that first episode, I was like, I can't, can't possibly touch on even a, a sliver of this discussion. And I wanted to have a second episode. Maybe this is going to be like your next book project. Well, I don't know. I look, there's some work on Irish stuff already, so I don't know if I can. 
What about Ugh. Irish same-sex and syphilis? Yeah, that was one thing I was thinking about. Oh, did I just blow your spot? No. <laughs> Nobody steal that as hard as Yeah, the sodomy <laughs> stuff is also really interesting. There's, you know, there's a story that I was going to include, but it didn't include, that's in the same Sins of the Flesh book um, that the Mago article on um, Venice is mm-hmm. in, and it was about Luca in Italy in the 16th century and how they associated or somehow the doctors decided that syphilis was only contracted through anal sex. Oh. So, and not just between men, but obviously they were targeting men because they were concerned about a population dip and they wanted to stop same-sex sex from happening. Mm-hmm. But also among women, like prostitutes who mm-hmm. were providing anal sex to mm-hmm. their customers. Mm-hmm. Um, super fascinating. And also they had this one guy who's from the court. He was like the court official. And he went around and, and like tried to entrap people. He tried to collect stories to get people to charge with. He tried to convince women who were raped that to tell the court that they were raped anally if oh they presented God. symptoms of, of syphilis. It was Wild. And what year is this? This like, was the 1500s. Oh, good lord! Wow. Yeah, I think it was like mid 1500s. Because I'm thinking like that kind of sounds like Comstock, who I'm going to be talking about in a little yeah. bit. Yeah, you're talking about the 1500s. Oh wow. my god, it's there's so much. Um, I'm sorry that I couldn't have given you people. It's okay. More. We'll have like you know episode three, four, and five. Yeah, I think <laughs> I also wanted to focus this one on 18th and 19th century because. Because you needed it for an assignment. <laughs> <laughs> Newsflash, that's what we do. Students, enjoy. Okay. All right, thanks for listening. Oh, I didn't put the stuff at the Leave end. us reviews and follow us on Facebook and Twitter and all that good stuff. Dig underscore history. Um, you can always email us at hello at digpodcast.org if you have questions, comments, ideas for future episodes, if you want to weigh in on you know, the great origin debate of the last syphilis episode, or you have uh, your own interesting syphilis articles that you've encountered as you've been, you know, doing going in a JSTOR rabbit hole, which happens to happens. the best of us. Yes. Um, share those with us. We'd love to hear from you. And uh, we thank you for listening. Yes, we do. Bye. Bye bye. This podcast was produced by the historians of DIG, Elizabeth Garner-Masaryk, Sarah Hanley-Cousins, Marissa Rhodes, and me, Averill Earls. Thanks for listening. One early modern doctor. Hi, Castoro. One early modern daughter. <laughs> Frank Castoro. Frank. Frank. Frank Castoro. Frank Castoro. Frank Castoro. That makes more sense. Thanks. What? Oh my God, I can't. Oh God, it, just, it burns just thinking about it. <laughs> Okay. Should I say that with a British accent? Charles Wash. I can't even. (laughs) Charles Charles Washington. (laughs) Shirley Dinkin. Charles Washington. Shirley Dinkin. Charles Washington. Where am I? I mean, interestingly, she. I think her current appointment. She's a a visiting professor at Alfred State University here in New York. Oh, cool. So like. Just down the road. I actually applied for a job there. Yeah. That was like the only job I've applied for yet. Maybe but if we It's had, a beautiful place. We should have had this before and then she would have been like, oh, I know that person. <laughs> I know that person. Bring her Give here. her a job. <laughs> um, Considering she's a visiting assistant. Yeah, that's true. It's true. It's true. It's true. Yeah, F that, man. I know. She's that. written this she's written a, book and yeah. she's doing a visiting. No, her full book, too. I w- you academia. Academia is the worst.
I'm sorry. It, it's either Levine or Levine. So <laughs> she, she, she don't care. I'm sorry. Hopefully. For a medical treaty. Treatise. How many times are you gonna make me say that? 